0: Folks, let's go ahead and, and get started. I want to use our time uh, wisely and cover as much as we can. I'm going to try to cover two lessons in one this morning to make up for time I missed. I thank you for those of you that have been praying for me. I'll give you an update on that. But let's, let's pray right now. And uh, hopefully, we'll, uh, I'll make it through the session. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Lord God, we bow before you this morning. We recognize that you are the creator of the universe and the creator of our lives, and uh, that we're not here by accident. You've been at work in and through our lives through a variety of situations good, the bad, and the ugly. And we thank you for the gift of faith that you've given us in Jesus Christ. And as we gather here this morning and over the next three months, really to look at, wrestle with, uh, delve into, and explore. The Apostles' Creed, we pray that our faith in you would be built up, that we, our foundation upon which we stand, would be solidified. And that would give us the greater courage and faithfulness we need to live lives um, that are winsome witnesses for Jesus in this current uh, culture of darkness and death and tyranny that seems to be enveloping our land and in our entire world. Uh, Lord, I'm reminded of my brother Paul Casher's saying, he says to me all the time, none of this makes God nervous. And we're thankful that though we're nervous you're not, and uh, that your promise is that you are with us always to the very end. And for that, we're grateful. So bless our time together. May we all grow in Christ today, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we get into the Apostles' Creed, I wanna talk about four things um, that I think will hopefully be informative to you. Uh, Some of you are aware of that young mother in Memphis, Tennessee, who was kidnapped and murdered. Her funeral was yesterday at Second Pres in Memphis. That's my wife Ann's home church. That's where we were married. And uh, that's where Mitchell Moore was an associate pastor before he went to Indonesia and then came here. Mitchell led that woman's husband to Christ, Richie Fletcher, back when he was an associate pastor, and he and Lisa were very close to Liza and Richie. So Mitchell was there yesterday as a part of her funeral at uh, Second Perez. This has been really hard for Mitchell and Lisa, so keep them in your prayers. And um, so that's the first thing I just want to say. And then, of course, Today is the 21st anniversary of 9-11. Our governor, Greg Abbott, has asked all Texans to take a moment and pray uh, and just ask God's mercy and redemption uh, and that we don't forget what happened there. So I'm going to ask us just to stop right now, silently, and just pray for a few moments. Whatever you feel led by the Holy Spirit to pray um, in terms of what happened in New York, Washington, and that field in Pennsylvania 21 years ago, so let's pray. Lord God, the cross reminds us that you can take the worst thing that ever happened in the history of humankind and and because of what you've done through that we call it good Friday not horrible Friday and so we trust that you're redeeming 9-11 may you continue to use that to shape our nation and shape us into the more faithful followers of Jesus and we ask all this in his name Amen. I don't know about you but I can remember where I was the moment those planes hit, I was taking my youngest daughter, Emily, to middle school in Dallas. We pulled up at a stoplight at Preston and Mockingbird, I was about to turn left to go to the middle school, and um, had uh, WBAP, which is the WAI of Dallas on. And I remember the, the news guy said, something's happened in New York, apparently a plane has hit the World Trade Center. Of course, I'm thinking Cessna, some guy had a heart attack, and. Lost control of the plane, you know. And they said, we're going to take you to our ABC affiliate, and you'll be able to hear what they're saying in New York. So they switched over that. and I remember a traffic report came on. They said the Harlem tunnel was backed up. You might want to take some other thing. And, And then they said, now we're going to switch to our reporter on the scene at the base of the World Trade Center. And so I'm more curious than alarmed. I'm feeling sorry for the guy who hoped nobody was in those offices where he hit and the guy's saying there's a plane has hit the World Trade Center, there's smoke and fire can. I'm like from a Cessna, I don't know. Maybe the fuel in the plane you know and then while he's talking my daughter and I could hear in the background this <laughs> and the reporter said oh my god, oh my god. A fireball has jumped from one tower to the other. I'm thinking, what? Then, of course, he's got an earpiece. They're telling him from their studios in New York because they're watching live what's going on. And then he goes, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Another plane has hit the other tower. I remember turning to Emily and saying, Emily, we are under attack. I dropped her off at school, went back to my office at Highland Park Perez, my assistant, get a TV in here right now. And we spent the rest of the day, you know, watching that horror. 9 11 is also another poignant day for me and for probably for many of you. This is the second anniversary of the homegoing of Louis Zebinden. So keep the Zabindin family in your prayers today. Um, then I want to give you a little bit of, I'm going to ask you a question. Everybody knows Queen Elizabeth died. She was a real godly lady, had a personal faith in Christ. What denomination did she belong to when she died? Anybody know? Huh? Church of England? You don't know your Presbyterian trivia. When the royal family sets foot on Scottish soil, they become Presbyterian. Church of Scotland is a state church. And in fact, Queen Victoria had a Presbyterian kirk built right outside Balmoral Castle where the royal family always would go Sunday morning. So that's why her she will lie in state today, I guess at uh, Holyrood, which is the royal residence there in Edinburgh down at the bottom of the, the Royal Mile. And her fun- or, uh, she will lie in state, not in the Anglican Cathedral in Edinburgh, in St. Giles Cathedral which is the Mother Kirk of Presbyterianism. So she died a Presbyterian. <laughs> so I'm going to tell all of my Episcopal friends that and remind them that they too won. You know there's not going to be all these denominations in heaven. We're all going to be Presbyterian. It's going to be great. <laughs> okay. This is the 21st Uh, anniversary of 9-11, and uh, I just told you where I was and what I was thinking when those planes hit. But I remember thinking that day, what if I, they made a movie on 9-11, and one of the scenes in the movie is you get kind of a a view of what, I guess, most of the passengers were seeing in that first plane. I mean, they're going down between the buildings, and you, you could see the buildings going by, I started thinking, what would I be doing if I was seated in that plane? Because um, pretty much you know that you can't be flying at this level with buildings on both sides of you. This isn't going to end well. What would you be doing? I'll tell you what I'd be doing. I'd be doing four things. The first thing I would do is I would cross myself. Now, that sounds Roman Catholic. I grew up in a half-Catholic family, but that has nothing to do with it. Um, if you've never read John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ, I urge you to do that. We, I had you all study it one Lent here and I preached a series of sermons, not through his book, but on looking at the cross from six different angles. And you know, Stott says, I think it's page 21, he says one of the f- bad things we did in the Reformation, and you know, we threw some of the baby out with the ba- bathwater, and he said one of those things is many Christians threw out the making of the sign of the cross nothing Roman Catholic about it, goes back to the early church and uh, I used to, and I never did it here because we had enough trouble with everybody emotionally involved with our former denomination, but if you had gone to Highland Park prayers for the 14 years I was there, I always ended with that benediction I give and then I would say, now go in peace, and then I would go like this, name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I did that only after we studied that book and they and I educated the people about that. So the first thing I do is make the sign of the cross. Second thing I would do is say, not say, pray the Lord's Prayer. Now everybody should have the Lord's Prayer memorized. Never recite it. Pray it. Think about every word. I do that, then I would say the Apostles' Creed, which again implies that that's something you ought to have memorized. When I was a kid growing up, I grew up in the ARP, the Associate Reform Presbyterian Church, and Confirmation was really rigorous. We had to memorize the short Westminster Shorter Catechism, and we had to know the Apostles' Creed. I knew Apostles' Creed backward and forward. Now, when I was an associate pastor here, Lewis was a stickler for worship. You could burn the church down during the week, but you don't make a mistake during worship. Um, So, three Sundays in a row, part of what I was doing in the service, I was leading the congregation in the Apostles' Creed. Well, I never took the creed up with me because I didn't hear. I could say it backwards, sideways. Three Sundays in a row, I messed up. After (laughs) Sunday 2, Lewis pulled me aside and said, what's wrong with you? You take the creed up there with you. I said, I'm not. I have not memorized. Third Sunday, messed up again, but I never took it up with the fourth Sunday, I never missed, but that's one of the most traumatic moments (laughs) in my life, but if you don't have the creed memorized, I'm not going to say shame on you, but you ought to, it's not hard to do, so that when you stand up with the congregation on Sunday, you're not having to look in the book or look at the screen, you can close your eyes and just say it, and uh, out of your heart not just recite it so uh then the fourth thing i do is i sing a hymn great is thy faithfulness i used to tell everybody down in park prayers that's one you ought to memorize at least two hymns great is thy faithfulness and uh uh luther's hymn uh, mighty fortress is our god you should never have to open your hymn book for those hymns you know hymnody is one of the greatest forms of theology in the church. Um, hymns bear the test of time because the bad theology hymns tend to disappear. And what we have in our hymn book is really good theology and a mighty fortress and greatest thy faithfulness. Memorize this. Memorize this. So if you're in a plane crash and the captain comes on and goes, we've got about a minute before we nosedive. Pray the Lord's Prayer Cross yourselves. Say the Apostles' Creed and sing a hymn. And that's the way I want to I wanna die. Okay, let's talk about creeds a little bit before we get into the Apostles' Creed. Why creeds? Um, you know, creeds are really a product of the community of faith. The Bible knows nothing of Lone Ranger Christians. This idea that, you know, me and Jesus, my Bible out on the hillside by myself, I don't go to church, you know, I just... The Bible knows nothing of that. If you're a Christian, let me throw out a question to you rhetorically. Can you be a Christian and not be a part of the church of Jesus Christ, including an actual organic local body of believers? Now, I would say yes and no. Uh, Yes, the thief on the cross never went through a new member class, and he never joined a church, but that's the exception to the rule. Scripture makes clear that we're to locate ourselves within a body of believers. We, we can't really follow Christ faithfully on our own. And we live in a, you know, 21st century America is very me-oriented, uh, you know, Western individualism. Um, and you've probably heard people say that, uh, saying it's popular right now. Well, I'm spiritual, but not religious. My answer to that is, well, what do you get when you cross a crocodile and an abalone? A crocabalone. <laughs> do you, does anybody here know what religion or religious literally means? I used to have an aversion to that term. In fact, on applications, they put religion, I put none, and then occupation, pastor. You know, that always <laughs> I thought, I wonder how they're going to interpret that. But because I thought religion is just you know, that formal, you know, I'm in a relationship with Christ, not religion, but anybody know what religious literally means? This changed my whole paradigm of thinking about. It. it literally means connected, connected, that's it. So can you be spiritual without being religious? We can be spiritual, you can worship a tree, that's spiritual. But, Connected to the body of Christ, connected to Christ and his body, is what religion is all about. I'm not talking about formalistic, you know, liturgies and such. No, you can't be in a genuine relationship with Christ unless you're religiously connected to him and other believers. That's the biblical norm. And creeds arise out of the community of faith. Um, the, Re- the Reformation put the Bible back into the hands of the people, but with a caveat. Luther, Calvin, all the Reformers said every Christian ought to be able to have access to the scriptures and read it on their own, but should never depend on a personal interpretation of scripture. What am I saying? Well, if you read the Bible, you, you can come up with a personal interpretation of what that means, but the reformers would say, "But you don't stop there. You put it up against the wisdom of the larger community of faith." The reason there's sects and cults out there, offshoots from genuine Christianity, is largely because some guy, like Judge Russell, Russell who's a Presbyterian, gets some personal interpretation of Scripture, and he goes off to found Jehovah's Witnesses which I'll give you a little trivialization thing about the word Jehovah and next time you know one of the watchtower people knocks on your door you can say well were you a Jehovah's Witness? Yes! Tell them there's no such word as Jehovah. Yes there is! It's in the Bible. No it's not. The Hebrew tetragrammaton, the four Hebrew letters that are unpronounceable to Orthodox Jews will not say it. They will always say Adonai, meaning Lord. They will not pronounce. There's Hebrew language has uh, the big word, the letters you see are consonants, all consonants. Vowel, they have vowel points underneath uh, Hebrew words that help you pronounce it. Guess what? The tetragrammaton, no vowel points. There are four consonants. Well, Bible translators, when they started translating the scriptures into different languages, thought, well, gosh, what are we going to do? Here's what they did. They took the vowel points from under the Hebrew word Adonai, slid them under the tetragrammaton, which produces Yahweh or Yehovah. So and I know this sounds crude, but I mean it's technically right term. Jehovah's a bastard word. It's made up by men st- sticking vowel points from one word under consonants of another. And when you tell Jehovah's Witnesses these, and I've done it many times, it freaks them out. I say, go Google it, which you can do. And you, and they, you never see them again. So uh, that's more than you paid for. But anyway, um, beware of personal interpretations of Scripture. We should always be bringing our faith every day under the Word of God, but also as defined by the community of faith. And that's where creeds come from. Creeds usually originate either by a community of saying, what is it that we believe? We're going to agree to interpret Scripture a certain way. What is it that we believe? Or else to combat heresy. What about the Apostles' Creed? That arose probably as a baptismal creed, and we'll get into that in just a minute. Although it was also combating a heresy of the day, uh, which was Gnosticism and uh, Arianism. Arianism is they're still around, called Unitarians today. They didn't believe that God's a triune community of faith in and of himself. And so the Apostles' Creed is very Trinitarian. I believe in God the Father, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit. But it's a baptismal creed, so it's very short uh, rather than, as opposed to the Nicene Creed, which is much more needy, and we'll get into that in a little bit, but I just want to make that point. Um, so an approach that you and I should always have toward the creeds and toward our own faith is always an approach of humility. You know, um, we all find stuff in scripture and think, oh, this is great. Probably nobody's discovered this before. Well, they probably have, Um, but you know, if you think, well, I think this proves that Jesus came from Venus. Well, put that up against the larger faith of the community of faith for thousands of years. That's a, a good corrective to keep you and me from veering off. Our former denomination had stopped even giving any credence to the creed. We had 11 of them. When we voted, I was an associate pastor here to unite with the Northern church. We only had one creed, that was the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's the one I was ordained under. That's my favorite. And they had this book of confessions, the Northern church, and they wanted us to adopt that. And you had four pastors here at the time, Lewis, myself, Jim Singleton, and a fourth pastor. Lewis, Jim, and me voted against Reunion. The other pastor voted for it. And um, I remember Lewis asked me, he said, why are you going to vote against it? I said, well, the Book of Confessions. He said, what's wrong with that? I said, in one sense, nothing. All those confessions were good, biblically orthodox. Uh, confessions of faith, but here's my theory. I said, Louis, if, if we have eleven confessions, we really are going to wind up with a nun. uh... and that's what happened. Well, I voted against it for another reason too. I was a research scientist before going in the ministry, and I think in terms of chemistry and physics. And I said, Louis, I'm not going to vote for this reunion because we're going to be lashing two sinking ships together. That never works. So anyway. So we're, we're now out from that and we're f- sailing along, but we'll only sail along when we keep faithful to what I call the biblical apostolic faith. The biblical faith primarily looked at through the lens of the apostles' teaching, and that's why the Apostles' Creed is so uh, important. Let me just say right off, the Apostles' Creed was not written by the 12 apostles, there's no evidence that was somebody tried to make up a thing years ago, but they, they tried to divide it into 12 parts. You know, no, no, we don't know who wrote the creed. It evolved over a period of decades, if not century centuries, it was probably in place the way we have it sometime during the fourth century, but probably began materializing in the second century. So you might have even 200 years of Hammering this thing out, basically as a baptismal creed, basically to combat the heresy of Arianism, Unitarianism. Um, okay, um, why are we com- why study the Apostles' Creed? Well, for one thing, it's the most widely used and accepted creed across the world of Christendom. If you want to call it that, uh, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant, that's one creed along with the Nicene Creed that we all hold in common. Well, we don't actually hold the Nicene Creed in common with our Eastern Orthodox uh, brothers. And, and we don't. They, there's one letter, not a word, one letter difference in the Nicene Creed. If you go to St. Sophia's on St. Mary's here, and the way we it. and the word is homoousia. Uh, in the Greek Nicene Creed we follow, uses the word homoousia. The Eastern Orthodox say, no, no, there should be an iota in there, an I, letter Greek I. Uh, homoousia. Well, what's the difference? Homoousia is used in reference to that uh, Jesus is the exact. Uh, manifestation of Almighty God. Homoi softens that and says, it's like that. And so the Eastern Church and the Western Church battled over, that. that's really the divide between us. And, uh, you know, when somebody talks about, you know, one little iota, that's where that comes from, because that's the difference in the Nicene Creed between East and West. But the Apostles' Creed accepted by all faithful Christian groups. It's short, it's easy to memorize, it's something you and I ought to carry around with us to remind us where we should have both feet planted. Um, and um, so the Apostles' Creed, um, again, is, well, let me stop here. Okay. Let me talk about three important rubrics of acceptance of any creed. By the way, uh, you know, we belong to ECO, the Evangelical Covenant Order of Presbyterians, and I started campaigning, I was one of the original founders of it, but I said, we, we, we adopted the Book of Confessions of our previous denomination, simply because we wanted to build an exit ramp that looked just like them so they couldn't say, well you're too narrow, whatever. Once we got out, I said to the leadership of our church, we need to get rid of Moses, confet- not rid in terms of throwing them out the window, but officially being, you know, creeds are kind of like the lens that you and I look through as we interpret scripture. I believe one lens works better than four, because we're, we're down from 11 to four. We accept Westminster, Nicene, Apostles' Creed, and the Heidelberg Catechism, and all those are just excellent. And so are the other ones that, we still use and we can read them, but they're not officially our lenses for interpreting scripture. So I'm still working to get us down to one. I don't know if I'll see that in my lifetime, but we'll we'll see. But anytime you're dealing with any creed, three rubrics you need to remember. The first is a quote from St. Augustine. And this is important for you and I to believe and understand. Augustine would say, you and I believe in order to understand. See, that's counterintuitive. Usually we think, somebody says, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Well, show me the evidence. And if you can, you know, do an apologetic and prove to me, then I'm, Augustine would say, it's not about you and your understanding. It's about the Holy Spirit lifting the veil from your eyes and enabling you to see what's true. It's about you being daring enough to step forward and say, "Okay, I'm going to commit my life to what's in the Apostles' Creed. Augustine would say, and not until you do that will you ever really understand. So he's saying belief, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about what belief really means. uh, Understanding follows belief. Let me give you an illustration how that works. This is a true story. Presbyterian um, seminary classroom, and they were studying the Nicene Creed. So the professor thought, I'll bring in an Eastern Orthodox priest to lecture on it and give us the Eastern perspective. <laughs> and so the priest did that, and they had a Q&A time at the end, and a student raised his hand and said, uh, Father, what about if you don't believe something in the creed what should you do? Without flinching, the Orthodox priest said, you say it. The student, thinking the priest didn't understand his question, said, no, no, no. Like, if there was a certain phrase in the creed that a person doesn't believe is true, what should they do? The priest said, I already answered your question. You get up with all other believers and you say the creed. Well, this really frustrated the student, So. Finally, he fessed up and said, well, look at I don't believe. I don't know what phrase it was. I don't believe that. So what am I to do? I'm here to study, to be a pastor. And the priest said, well, you need to do one of two things. You need to stand up and say the creed with everybody else, no matter what you believe, or don't be a pastor. And then he went on to explain. He said, you know, he said, this is not your creed. You can't fool with it. You can't change stuff. You can't pull something out because you don't like it. If you're gonna be a part of the community of faith that for 2,000 years or 1,700 years has said, this is the playing field we've agreed to play on. This is what defines us as a community. You're free not to be a part of that community. I agree with what he said. And you may, somebody here may be saying, golly, should I leave First Press? I don't believe X, the Apostles' Creed, or the Nicene Creed. Do not leave First Press. Stay with us. Say the Creed with us. Let us carry you. Let us carry you. And you know what I think is going to happen? Well, I'll tell you, Karl Barth, he's not my favorite Reformed theologian. He's one of the better ones in the 20th century. Um, I disagree with him on a lot. But He came out of a classical uh, German late 19th century liberal theological education, which was undermined by rationalism, which basically the idea of miracles uh, were thrown out of scripture. Those were additions, you know, superstitions. Put in. so Bart comes out of that, and he comes out of seminary not believing the virgin birth which, by the way, is a, a misnomer. Jesus was born just like we were. It's really the virgin conception. When Gabriel appears to Mary and says, you're with child. And she says, what you talking about? <laughs> I've never been with a man. I mean, Mary knew. She wasn't, you know, a, a dunce. Um, she knew what it took to make a baby. Gabriel says, not this time. And she didn't understand. How could she? Here's an illustration of believing before, she said, okay, I step into that, be it done unto me as you say. Well, Bart didn't believe the virgin birth, and he took a small reformed church in the Swiss Alps as their pastor. They had the Apostles' Creed in the uh, service. Right away, Bart's hit with a theological dilemma. I want to be a good pastor. I want to be honest, though. Should I remove the Apostles' Creed from the service? Because I don't believe the virgin birth, I don't want to get there and say that something I don't believe. And and draw them like, well the pastor's saying it. it must be right. He said, well maybe I could doctor the creed and pull that phrase out. Maybe they won't notice. And he wrestled with that. He wrestled with that. And then you know I talked about how humility must be kind of the the the, the bottom line posture for doing any kind of theology. Bart models humility. One day he came to the realization that could it be that perhaps the wisdom of the larger church over the centuries and millennia outweighs my early 20th century finite individual interpretation. You know what Bart did? He left the creed in the service, left that phrase in. He stood every week with his people and said the creed and here's the Paul Harvey now you know the rest of the story. Two men in the 20th century wrote the most powerful defenses of the virgin birth, virgin conception. One was Gra- Gratiam Machin, Presbyterian at, and, uh, at Princeton Seminary, and the other was Karl Barth. He co- becomes one of the greatest defenders of the virgin conception. So we believe in order to understand. That's number one rubric. Number two, Um, is this saying that my mentor John Leith in seminary used to hammer home with us. He said, truth is always unto goodness. In other words, if you're not really pursue truth, that ought to make a difference in our lives and move you and me toward lives that are bearing fruit in a good way for the kingdom. Uh, We all know mean Christians, every church has some mean christians they're theologically orthodox they believe all the right stuff but they're just mean and you know their and their lives don't match their beliefs well whose does nobody but the question is are you and i striving struggling fumblingly to try to follow christ as faithfully as we can and when we sin we keep short accounts with god and confess it and move on but you know if you graft your life and mine over the years, would there be more goodness being displayed up here than back here? If not, something's probably wrong. Truth is always under goodness. So when you hear a Christian say, let's just go over and kill. Uh, I remember there was this old Army-Navy store there on Broadway just up the street. i drive by it Sunday mornings, and they used to have a flag in there that said, uh... Kill them all and let God sort them out, you know. But, well, I know some Christians who believe that. Let's just go there kill them all and let God sort them Truth is always unto goodness. What you and I believe should be life transformational for our lives and those around us. Then lastly, um, bad theology always hurts people. Bad theology always hurts people. That's why you and I need to try to be the best theologians we can be. And I don't want to ever hear a lay person come to me and say, well, Ron, I'm not a theologian. Yes, you are. Everybody that is not brain dead is a theologian. Um, Richard Dawkins, the atheist, he's a theologian. Theology means theos, God, logos, words, means words about God. If you say, I don't believe there is a God, that's a theological statement. Everybody's a theologian. And um, bad theology always hurts people. That's why First press, we need to be the best theologians we can be, and personally, even I need it. So we want to hold fast to what's good in theology. Again, that's best done in community. I have a quiet time every day where I read the Bible by myself, but I'm also a part of a, a men's Bible study well, I'm always hearing perspective. I learned so much. You know, when I retired from the ministry, I, I've learned in three years I've been retired that I didn't know one-tenth of what I thought I did. And Paul and I, we're the only revs in that group. And aren't we discipled by these other laymen? I am. Paul thinks he knows it all. Well. I'm no, just kidding. He doesn't and uh, so commit yourself today through this series and then the rest of your life to being a good theologian you're going to strive to be the best theologian you possibly be so now i want to deal with the first two words of the creed today and then we'll get to god the father next week the first word is i you might think and that was going to be my first session completely on the word i Well, how do you fill 50 minutes with one word with only one letter? It's not hard. Um, First thing is, notice the difference between the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. How does the Nicene Creed begin? We. See, that's a community statement of the broader broader church. Why does the Apostles' Creed begin with the statement, I? Well, I've kind of already told you. It's probably because... It began chiefly as a baptismal creed. And you know, we're, we're all supposed to uh, be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. And we, we ought to emphasize community more than we do rather than individual discipleship. But there is a time when you and I need to stand apart from everybody else, stand on our own two feet, and say, This is where I stand. You know, the Apostles' Creed is always introduced every week by one of the liturgists saying, uh, we're going to now say what we believe, answering the question, Christian, what do you believe? And that's your opportunity to stand forward, picture yourself sometime, not just standing in the sanctuary of First Pres or some other church, picture yourself standing before the entire world and saying, here I stand. I don't care what any of you believe, this is where I stand, this is what I believe. That's what we ought to be doing every week. So... I, I believe. Um, Jesus, Matthew sixteen thirteen through 20, listen to this. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people, plural, say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, Simon Peter steps forward, alone. He doesn't say okay guys okay here's our consensus. Simon Peter steps up, he stands there Jesus says you know answer the question Peter what do you believe? And he says you are the son, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. I believe that. Blessed are you Simon Bar-Jonah flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. Peter didn't understand what was going on in order to believe because they didn't understand who Jesus was yet. That was a moment when the Holy Spirit lifted the veils from his eyes, regenerated Peter's heart. Here's Peter coming to faith in Christ. You are the son Christ, the son of the living God. My father revealed this to you in heaven. And uh, so here's Peter believing in order to understand. Then he figured out, began to figure out who Jesus, Jesus is. Okay, um, only, only, okay. So another way of looking at this is, look. the word I, is to ask you a question. Who do you think you are? Who are you? You know, it's really pretty simple. There's only two answers to that. You and I are either the product of, over a period of, Long time and chance of electronic electromagnetic particles happening to bump into each other in certain ways that voila, we are a human being, what we call a human being. That's option number one. Just about every university in the world is teaching that. I was a pre veterinary major in, in college and went on and got a master's in cell biology, and I was taught that although I never bought into it. I mean, and right now, everything in the science world is undermining Darwinian evolution like never before. Secular models with computers show that there's not been enough time, no matter how far you run the time out. And here's the thing that the Hubble Telescope revealed that the Big Bang Theory is actually true. There was a time when there was no matter And at a pinpoint in time, suddenly matter just exploded. So what I'm trying to say is, if you got in an argument with the Darwinists, they'd say, well, you know, there's infinite time. So the possibility of us winding up, you know, there's a possibility. The Hubble telescope revealed that the universe is about 13.4 billion years old. That sounds like a lot to us. To an astrophysicist, that's nothing. And they're going, whoa that's not enough time to evolve one simple cell, let alone billions of species of flora and fauna. Um, so your other option is there's some kind of creator with a capital C. And of course as Christians we believe that. And that, You know, I'm, I'm a scientist. Being a scientist doesn't mean you have proof for everything. It means you follow the evidence, go where the evidence takes you. It may not take, let me give you an illustration. Uh, I was an electron microscopist, but guess what? Nobody has ever seen an electron. And there's no way to prove to you that electrons exist. In fact, there's a principle called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle that means when you think an electron is there, it's already moved. And so you can't be certain, you can't make one stop and take a picture of it. So why do we believe there are electrons? because we can do experiments based on the hypothesis that electrons exist, and the experiments work. The evidence takes you, Chuck? We get shocked by them. Yeah, yeah, stick a <laughs> screwdriver in your, in your wall socket and that ought to be enough proof. Richard Dawkins, do you believe it now? No. Um, so you, you can't, I can't prove to you that God created me, but all the evidence leads to that you got to have much more faith i'm serious much more faith to be an atheist than to be a bible believing christian and this new telescope the jim west telescope this is going to undergird scripture in the years to come like you won't believe and a lot of astrophysicists are becoming at least deists if not believers in christ so we're going to see a lot more of that too so those are your two options you're an accident in the universe, or you're the product of a loving creator. Now, the way you live your life, the way you whichever those things you believe is going to influence. Again, theology, the truth is always to goodness. If you really believe the truth, that you're just a random conglomeration of electromagnetic magnetic particles that happen to bump into each other over a long period of time, um, that's gonna change the way. You might not think about this, but it does change the way you look at other people. But if you really believe that every human being is made in the image of God, in our eco-essential tenets, we we opt for the latter. We believe that we are made in the image of God. Every human being. That's where our essential tenets say that means we reverence, value, affirm, defend and protect every human being, not based on their status of race, color, ethnicity, brain power, what they have or don't have, uh, whether they're spiritually oriented like we are or not, we're committed to protect their lives from womb to tomb. That's why our denomination is unabashedly pro-life. We believe Nobody is an accident. Our conception may have been under adverse circumstances, and we should have compassion. Truth is always unto goodness. So if we really believe that, we better be coming alongside women with unwanted pregnancies or victims of rape or incest or anything else. This church is doing that with our KLR. We're the only church, I think, in the world that has a sonogram machine down the basement. So we're pro-life, and that you know. every day I pray, Lord, help me to see every person I meet through the lens of the cross and to treat them as you would want me to treat them in Christ's name, no matter who they are, no matter how, if they're mean or nice or, you know, unconditionally. Now, that's easier said than done, but that ought to be what we're striving for. Um, John Calvin... Well, let me say this. A good way to begin the day is to start this way. Say, God, you're God, and I'm not. When you ask yourself the question, who am I? That's a good place to start. Because we all, because of the fall in Genesis 3, we all really want to be God. We all really want to run the universe and tell him what to do. So a good way to start, God, you're God, I'm not. And um, John Calvin said something very important. He said, You and I can never know who we really are until first we know who God is. Well, that begs the question, can we know God? Christians say yes, well how? Well, we believe this is actually not just some quaint religious book put together over a thousand years by some primitive people in the Mideast. We believe this is actually God's inspired self-revelation. That's why I want to encourage you if you're not doing this to read through the Bible every year. I do, that. I have a little hour daily bread and has a Bible reading calendar. It takes you about 25 minutes a day and you will read through the Bible. I've done it, I'm on my 46th time, straight through the Bible. I've learned far more doing that than my four years in seminary. And it's amazing how much stuff I learn every year. But until you know who God is, You're never really going to know who you are. And one of the things about the Apostles' Creed, have you ever had a friend come to you and say, well, you know, I don't believe Jesus is God, but I try to follow his teachings. Obviously, they've never, or, or, or I live by the Sermon on the Mount. I always say, well, obviously, you've never read the Sermon on the Mount. If you have, who the heck can live by the Sermon on the Mount? It's kind of the same way of saying who can keep the Ten Commandments? Perfectly. No, notice the Apostles' Creed until the end says nothing about you and me. It does have some benefits for you and me at the end. We'll get to those in a few weeks. It's all about who God is. Tell me how many teachings of Jesus are in the Apostles' Creed. I'll give you a hint. It begins with the letter Z. Zero. From the beginning, the early church said what's most important theologically is not how you live or not who you are, but who God is, and you better get that right or nothing else will fall into place. And so um, we need to quit here in just a minute, but I want to get to the word believe. And I want to just start looking at yourself when you ask the question, who am I? Forget about it. Who you are is not based on uh, what you have or don't have, what you've accomplished or failed to accomplish in your life. Every day you ought to say, God, you're God, I'm not, and I am made in the image of God. That's where our self-esteem, our value, our worth in its totality comes from. You and I aren't any better than somebody lying in an ICU unit flatlined. We're no better than they are. They are made in the image of God. They are loved by God. And everything in between. And so your worth is based solely on the fact you and I are made in the image of God. Now believe. That's a, I believe. Well, What does that mean? What does the word believe mean? I want us to get away from the idea that if you can give intellectual assent to every phrase of the creed, you're in. Let me blow that apart for you biblically. In James 2, verse 19, look it up. Um, James is writing to the early church, and he says, you believe God is one. Now, the Hebrew Shema, which was their Apostles' Creed, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That was their Apostles' Creed. And James is saying, okay, you Jewish, former Jewish believers now in the church, you believe God is one? Big deal. Even the demons believe." Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that the most orthodox, theologically orthodox beings in the universe are the demons? Demons do not sit around and argue over whether the virgin conception happened or not. They witnessed it. They don't have debates. Did Jesus bodily rise from the grave or was it a resurrection of his spirit? Demons don't. They laugh at us. They know, they can affirm every phrase of this creed except one. Does anybody know what it is? Is it one word they can't affirm? No. Hmm? No. no. Believe. Because belief in the Christian faith has something to do with intellectual assent. Yes, you need to decide is this true intellectually. The best way I can tell you what it means to believe is to tell you a true story. Turn of the century, 19th to 20th century, uh, the greatest, the evil Knievel of that day was a guy named Charles Blondin. He was a tight wire walker and his big deal was, you know, if the World Trade Centers existed back then, he would have been the guy that, so what was the equivalent back in that day, Niagara Falls. He announced that he was going to stretch a tight wire from the American side to the Canadian side right over the falls. Now, if you know anything about Niagara Falls, there's like X billions of gallons of water going over at any second, which creates a tremendous updraft. So, Blondine studied the situation. He realized if he's going to make it, he's going to have to have this tight wire. I mean, it's got to be taut like you couldn't believe. So, he got engineers working on it, and they had guy wires anchoring that tight wire on both sides of the, the falls. So... Blondine shows up and thousands of people gather on each side, reporters, uh, are photographing this. And he's on the American side. And he says, who here believes I can do this? And everybody, yeah, you're great. You're Charles Blondine." So he's got his pole and he sets out. And he, he makes it all the way to the Canadian side. People are erupting and cheering. Everything else. He turns right around and starts heading back toward the American side. And he makes it again, and the flash bulbs are popping and the crowd chanting, Blondine, Blondine, Blondine. And he gets up on a podium and he says, Who's the greatest tight wire walker in the world? Blondine, Blondine, Blondine. Does everybody here believe this? Yes, yes. He said, Okay, I need a volunteer. Who will step forward, get on my shoulders, and go across? I see those hands. No, no hands went up. He turns to his manager. Now, this guy must have really been hard up for work. He said, "Do you believe I can do this?" The manager's like, "Uh "Get up here." The manager does it. He gets on his shoulders. They go out, and they're about halfway across, and one of the guy wires uh, breaks. Suddenly, the the wire is going like this. Here's what Blondine says to his manager. First thing he said was, don't panic. Sure. He said to him, there's an important part. I hope you never forget this the rest of your life. He said, look it. You've got to trust me that I know what I'm doing. And I'm going to give you commands. And if you don't do them, if you don't follow what I say, we're both going to die. If the wire's swaying to the right and your gut's saying lean to the left to balance that, and I say lean right into it, you've got to do what I say or we're going to die. So he said, you and I have got to become one. You and I have got to become one. The manager does it. They make it to the Canadian side. Think about that in terms of belief. Everybody there intellectually believed Blondine could do that. One person, (laughs) he believed in order to understand, uh, trusted Blondine, but then became one with him. How many times in your life do you feel like the Lord's telling you to lean left and your gut's saying lean right? We need to check that out against Scripture. You know, there are other spirits out there whispering in your ears and mind. But there's a lot of times Christ has told me to do something like, it. is there anybody else up there? Um, every time I've followed his will, it doesn't mean I'm spared from pain and f- being frightened, but it, it, I can see looking back, oh, that was him. So belief is climbing up on the shoulders of Christ, that personal relationship with Jesus, trusting him in the face of, whatever life throws in our way and living by his commands, not our intuitive gut. Okay, next, next week we're going to get into what does it mi- mean to believe in God, the Father Almighty. I'm going to leave you with this little ditty. I believe that phrase is the most controversial phrase in the creed. And we'll get into why that is so next week. Let's pray. Lord God, we do believe. At the same time, we need to pray, forgive our unbelief. There are times when we waver. Holy Spirit, you're the only one that enables us to believe. Break open our hearts. Uh, lift the veil from our blind eyes. Unstop our deaf ears. That we might hear your still small voice. That we would be able to recognize your voice amidst the cacophony of the world's siren and, and uh, shouting voices that we would like the she- like the sheep know the voice of the shepherd we'd recognize your voice and go where you call us to go do what you call us to do and be who you call us to be as men and women made in your image and we ask this in Jesus name amen